Church, I am really excited about preaching uh, on this subject today. This particular subject, this particular topic is one that's always been, always will be, I think, I hope anyway, uh, one that's just very, very near and dear to my own heart, and I think that it's that it's one that we uh, unfortunately have a tendency to gloss over a lot of times, even, even though the Bible is just full, just chock full of so many examples and so many uh, so many imperatives of our call on this subject. I think by now, y'all have been here since, what, June, middle of June? I think by now that you guys know that I don't shy away from some of the more difficult topics, that, that I don't mind uh, diving deep into the scriptures and talking about some of this stuff that might be uncomfortable to some of us. And that, I think that's the way that we should be. I think that's the way pastors should be. I don't like pastors who don't discuss the difficult topics. I think they're just earning a paycheck. Y'all can tell them I said that. <clears throat> but we're called to do that sometimes. We're called to address certain topics that may make some of us uncomfortable. And here's the thing. Jesus should make us uncomfortable. Scripture should make us uncomfortable. I don't care if you've been occupied in a church pew for 50 years. The gospel should make us uncomfortable. I heard one time, if Jesus doesn't offend you, you don't know Jesus. And that is so, so very true. It continues to be true for my life. The Bible should be offensive. Because we all got sin in our lives. And we all got certain areas of our lives, of our thinking, that run contrary to Holy Scripture. And I've talked to you guys about that before. So we're going to be taking a look at the idea today of social justice through a Christian lens, through a biblical lens. Now already, when I just used that term, some of y'all got really, really nervous. You got that weird feeling in the pit of your stomach. And maybe you're already turned off a little bit. Maybe you're already checking out some. Because what happened when you heard me use that phrase, social justice, you, your mind, your mind immediately went to something secular. Your mind immediately went to something political. And it did not go to something scriptural. And that's where we're messing up in a lot of areas right now. Is we need a return to scripture as the basis of our Christianity. And stop taking on some of these ideologies that are more secular. Justice. And I don't want to, it's gotten so pervasive in our culture. I don't like to use the word social justice anymore. Because it seems to identify a certain political group. I don't like using that phrase. I simply refer to it as biblical justice. I simply refer to it as God's justice. Or maybe just simply justice because that's what it is if we're Christians, if we're followers of Christ if we're legitimately following historical scripture we have a calling towards this this idea of executing justice in the world it starts in Genesis by the way we've always had this calling so again I'm going to do my best to avoid any kind of political implications to simply refer to this idea as biblical justice or just justice during this sermon. So let's define it real quick. Biblical justice has been handed down by God. Let's understand that first and foremost. 
The idea of executing justice, of being people of justice, has been handed down by God himself since the beginning of time, since the beginning of humanity. The idea starts, if you want to look back at scripture, it starts right there in Genesis. And it's basically a very simple thing. Justice, from a biblical point of view, is basically, from a godly point of view, is just about setting things right that are wrong. It's, just, it's about taking action. It's about us taking action. It's about us speaking up, giving voice, particularly to people on the margins and on the fringes of society. That's the basic idea of biblical, scriptural justice, what I call God's justice. Dr. Winfield Bevins, who is an Anglican priest and a uh, professor or the director of church planning at Asbury Seminary, um, wrote a book fairly recently, and I'm going to give you the definition that he gives it uh, in just a second. But if you ever get a chance to read Dr. Bevins, he spells his last name B-E-V-I-N-S. -E he, uh, if you ever want to read anything regarding spiritual formation or prayer, he's one of the best. He's, he's one of the best out there. Anyway, he defines it simply as this. It's very similar to the way that I defined it a second ago. He said, he, he said you know, biblical justice, justice are basically actions that are taken on behalf of those who are oppressed or those who are marginalized by society. He goes on to say, today we may call it social justice or whatever, but it is simply just another extension of God's mission to reclaim everything in his kingdom. What a powerful statement that is. We are an extension of God's mission to reclaim everything in his kingdom, everything in our society that has gone wrong. We are called to take action to make it right, especially, especially, especially on behalf of those on the fringes of society. It's about setting things right, taking that action. The practice of biblical justice, church, is God's will for his people. Taking action is God's will for his people. He's espoused it throughout, <clears throat> throughout the entirety of Scripture. It is a fundamental, traditional, and historical belief and practice for the church over thousands of years. Even the Jewish tradition prior to Christianity in your Old Testament. Thousands of years. It always has been part of who we are. And it always has been part of God's will. And he has always espoused us, directed us, commanded us to participate in this direction. There's probably no other Old Testament prophet who better embodies and better talks about this, these ideas than the prophet Amos. Who is actually, by the way, sometimes referred to as the social justice prophet. And Amos' words to the people of Israel when he wrote them about 500 years before Christ even came along, are just as applicable to us in 2021 as they were back then. And I'm just going to let you take a look at, some, at a very short portion of the book of Amos. Very short portion there in chapter 5, verses 10 through 15. What we're going to find... As we go through just these five verses, and again, this is just going to be a this is just going to be a small, small example. What you're going to find in this scripture is that the idea of God's justice, biblical justice, taking behalf, taking action on behalf of the poor, the marginalized, the oppressed, 
is that this is a primary concern for God. Let me emphasize that word, primary. This is a primary concern for God, and as such, it is a primary concern for us. This is a non-negotiable, church. This is non-argumentative. This is not something we can challenge. This is a non-negotiable aspect of Christianity. Let's look at Amos 5, verses 10 through 15 real quick. I'll try to explain it to you, explain to you what's going on in these verses. Amos writes, There are those who hate the ones, the one who upholds justice in court, and detest the one who tells the truth. You levy a straw tax on the poor, and you impose a tax on their grain. Therefore, though you have built stone mansions, you will not live in them. Though you have planted lush vineyards, you will not drink their wine. For I know how many are your offenses and how great your sins. There are those who oppress the innocent and take bribes. And they deprive the poor of justice in the courts. Therefore the prudent keep quiet in such times, for the times are evil. Seek good, not evil. Now remember when Paul wrote the same words in Romans 12? Seek good, not evil, that you may live. Then the Lord God Almighty will be with you just as you say he is. Again, hate evil, love good, maintain justice in the courts, and perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. So here's a little background for, for, for Amos in general. Like I said a minute ago, uh, the book of Amos was probably written about 580, 587 uh, BCE. About 500 years, 550 years before Christ in the 6th century. Uh, and it was written to multiple audiences. Okay, So in the first and second chapter of the book of Amos, what you're going to find is you're going to find Amos writing to a number of nations. Keep that in mind. He wasn't writing to a church. He was writing to nations. Specifically, uh, you know, probably the, the Jewish people within those nations, but none of, within Israel anyway. But anyway... He starts writing out God's condemnation and God's judgment against various nations. Most of these nations surrounded Israel, okay? And most of these nations were enemies of Israel at the time. These condemnations, these judgments against God always focused on basically on two things. We know this one because we talk about this one a lot. They focused on personal sins, individual sins, and they also focused on the lack of justice that did not exist in these communities. People who were being taken advantage of, people who were being mistreated, people who were being overlooked, particularly, the, again, let's say it again, the downtrodden, the marginalized, the blind, the poor, the naked, the hungry, those types of people, those on the fringes of society who were being taken advantage of. And you can see, as, as God, as Job, as uh, Amos is pronouncing judgment on all these nations, you imagine that Israel is probably pumping their fists, right? Yeah, go get them, God, go get them, God. Well, what happens next? God starts pronouncing the same, or Amos starts pronouncing God's judgment on the nation of Israel for exactly the same things. Personal sins, immorality, and the lack of concern, the mistreatment, the systemic mistreatment of people on the fringes of society. And that's what the book of Amos is absolutely entirely about. The meat of the book of Amos is always a focus on the condemnation and the mistreatment of the oppression, the, the mistreatment of the oppression of the poor, the marginalized, and the outcast. And it was a very prosperous society. Israel at the time was a very prosperous society. It was a very wealthy society. 
one of the books that I read uh, while I was studying for this sermon kind of put it like this. They said, economic prosperity and political stability ruled the day, but spiritually Israel was decaying. The spiritual decay displayed itself in social injustice. The rich exploited the poor, the powerful dominated the weak, and morality meant little or nothing. Throughout the book, church, Amos does not mince words on this subject. This theme, his condemnation of Israel is a striking indictment against their rejection of God's will as it applies to the treatment of the poor and those on the fringes of society. One way that we see this mistreatment is found in our scriptures today, and this is really kind of a kind of a light incident in comparison to some of the other stuff that was going on. You see, God had already set standards in the court system, in the judicial systems. If you look all the way back to Leviticus, Leviticus 19:18, God God establishes the way that courts operate. He says, "Do not pervert justice. Don't show partiality to the poor." But also don't, sh don't share favoritism to the great. But judge your neighbor fairly. So we look back at verses 11 and 12. Thank you, guys. And here's what Amos writes to him. He says, you levy a straw tax on the poor and you impose a tax on their grain. Therefore, though you have built, some, built stone mansions, you will not live in them. Though you have planted lush vineyards, you will not drink their wine. For I know how many are your offenses and how great are your sins. There are those who oppress the innocent and those who take bribes and deprive the poor of justice in the courts. Remember, folks, number one, they're not talking about how we treat people individually. That's very important. Very important how we treat individually. But I'm going to point out to you that the court system is what? A system. A system. A corporate system where corporate sin was being committed. A group. These systems were wicked. And that's probably putting it a little bit lightly. There's really no other word for it. The, the powerful in this society, the wealthy, those who had pull, would use these systems, would use the judicial system to seize land. And they would use it to seize crops from the poorest among the Israelites. And then they would take these assets. They would use this court system to get these things. Then they would take their newly gained assets and they would build these mansions. They would build these huge houses for themselves. They would set up these, these lush and vast vineyards. And God was not impressed with it. Again, this is just one of many Many examples of how they were being mistreated. Folks, God cares about the poor. God cares about the downtrodden. He cares about the oppressed. And he cares about the marginalized. And he expects us to do something about it. He expects us to show his kingdom. He expects us to give voice to people who don't have one. Jesus. We went over this a number of weeks ago in Matthew 25. Jesus himself. He said, just as you have treated the naked, the hungry, the stranger, the sick, and the imprisoned, so also have you treated me. Don't make any mistake about this, church. The message of justice 
Again, it applies to our personal day-to-day -day lives, our individual lives, how we treat people individually. But it also applies to how we treat them corporately. Once again, we'll go back to the court system. That's not about individuals. That is about a system that was corrupt and wicked, and nobody did anything about it until God stepped in. It matters how we address systemic structures that oppress and mistreat others. Remember, remember here, God was passing judgment on nation states. He wasn't passing judgment on the individuals necessarily. He was. That was part of it. But at the end of the day, he was judging entire nations based on immorality and how they treated or mistreated the neediest, the weakest among them. That is so very important that we understand that and understand our role in that today. He wasn't judging a handful of people, folks. He was judging entire nations. See, a bad problem we've got, and, and I don't know how this happened or when this started to happen, but a bad problem that we've got a lot of times is we tend to focus our idea of sin strictly on the individual, strictly on me, how I sin, how I don't sin, how you sin. And that's okay. There's, there's, that's, uh, that's certainly um, important. I'm not saying that's not important, but we tend to focus it all of our ideas a lot of times on individual sin. But Amos, all of the Old Testament prophets, and I would argue Jesus, Paul, and most of the New Testament writers, make it perfectly clear that God's directives on biblical justice, call it what you want to call it, social justice, are applicable to the entire church, and they are applicable to entire nations. Consider this, folks. Consider this. And I may go a little long. Y'all... Bear with me. Consider this. I'm 45 years old. I was raised up in churches since I can really remember, probably since I was five. I'm not going to say I was a Christian all that time because I wasn't. But there's some, there's some stuff that I've heard uh, throughout my 45 years that's been pretty consistent from a lot of preachers, a lot of people who stand behind pulpits, a lot of teachers, a lot of, uh, a lot of you know, just a lot of lay Christians. And it's, it happened in the 80s, it happened in the 90s, it happened in the 2000s, and it's happening now. People always want to tell us, people always want to tell us that God is judging or that God is going to judge our country because of our individual immorality, because of our propensity towards individual sin. God's doing it. We're in trouble because, because we're in trouble because of the homosexuals. We're in trouble because of, of, of all the other sinners out there. We're in, in trouble because, because of the Republicans. We're in trouble because of the Democrats. Okay? I've heard that my entire life. And that may be true. Some of that may be very well true. That may very well be true. I'm not going to doubt for a second that God doesn't judge us because of our lax morality. But I'm going to tell you what I don't hear behind pulpits. I don't hear preachers telling us that God's going to judge our nation because of the way that we treat the poorest among us. That's one thing I've heard very, very seldomly from somebody standing behind a pulpit. Because he certainly did in the Old Testament. He certainly did in Amos, Micah, 
Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all of these Old Testament prophets prophesy to the same thing. Individual personal immorality and the way that these countries, these nations treated the most needy and the most weakest among them. God may very well be judging us. I don't know that. I don't have the mind of God. But I will say that if he's judging us for our personal immorality, he's also going to be judging us for the way that we treat the neediest among us. That's biblical all day long, folks. There's no arguing against that. Absolutely none. How does God really feel about it? How does God really feel about the way that we treat these folks? How does God really feel about justice? I don't have this slide up here, but if you would read a little bit beyond in Amos chapter 5, you'd read these words in verses 21 through 24. Amos writes the words of God. He says, I hate and I despise your religious festivals. I hate and I despise your assemblies. They are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of, noise of your songs, I will not listen to the music of your hearts. But let justice roll like a river, righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. That's how God feels about justice. Let me give you a little bit more of a modern-sounding application, a little bit more of a modern-sounding context to that. Here's how the Message Bible translates those verses. It says, I can't stand your religious meetings. These are the words of God. I can't stand your religious meetings. I'm fed up with your conferences and your conventions. I want nothing to do with your religion projects, your pretentious slogans, and your goals. I am sick of your fundraising schemes, your public relations, and your image making. I've had all I can take of your noisy ego music. When was the last time you sang to me? Do you know what I want? I want justice. Oceans of it. I want fairness. Rivers of it. That's what I want. That's all. I want justice is our way of worshiping God to a great degree. It shows how much we truly love our Creator. Taking action, speaking up on the behalf of those who have no voice. I'm going to give you another example. We talked about this in our Sunday school lesson a little bit this morning. Everybody in here knows the story of Sodom. Sodom the book of Genesis. Everybody knows Sodom was not a good place. There's a lot of sins that are, that are mentioned specifically in Genesis that were going on in Sodom. And uh, <clears throat> I'll go back again to the way that the story was always told to me when I was growing up was that the reason Sodom was destroyed was because of various sexual immoral acts that were going on. And the Bible certainly testifies to that. There was a lot of sexual immorality in that town, in that area. There were a lot of other sins in that area. <clears throat> but again, as I was growing up, that was always my understanding. Well, God destroyed Sodom because of all the sexual immorality. And I'll say it one more time, that may very well be the case. That may very well have been part of God's motive. The interesting thing is the Bible doesn't say that. It names a lot of sins that were going on Genesis. The Genesis account doesn't say that. It names a lot of sins that were occurring in Sodom. 
but it never directly gives us God's motive for destroying that area. If you can find it, and I know there's a lot of there's a lot of folks in this room who are deeply, deeply involved in their Bible studies. You can find it, show it to me. There's no place in Genesis that directly gives us God's motive for destroying Sodom. And again, that may very weaken it. I think we can even infer, given some of the sins that were mentioned in Genesis, that that may have been part of God's motive. It just doesn't say that. Most people don't know that God's motive is revealed in Scripture, but it's not revealed in that account. It's revealed in Ezekiel chapter 16. You would have to go all the way through to the book of Ezekiel. And Ezekiel does tell us God's motive. And again, all that other immorality may have been part of it. We don't know that. But Ezekiel 16.49 does tell us God's motive of destroying Sodom. Ezekiel 16.49 and 50 reads this. Sodom's sins were pride, gluttony, and laziness while the poor and the needy suffered outside of her door. She was proud and she committed detestable sins. So I wiped her out. So you, as you have seen. So yeah, sexual immorality, all that may have played into God's motive. I'm sure it probably did. But Ezekiel goes a little further. He tells us specifically they were cool, they were gluttonous, they were lazy. They were prideful while the poor and the needy suffered in their midst or outside their doors. I don't think God could really be any more emphatic or direct about his desire for his people to speak up and take action on behalf of others. If you were to read the prophet Micah. Generally, when we talk about the idea of justice, this is one of the most quoted scriptures that you'll find. Turn over to Micah chapter 6, verse 8. And God, right, Mike, Micah writes this in the words of God. He has told you. He has told you what to do. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? He has told you, O mortal, what is righteous. And what does the Lord require of you to do? To do justice. To love mercy. And to walk humbly with your God. That's it. If we could describe the life of a Christian, that's it. What matters to, be, to being a Christian, that's it. To do justice. To love mercy, kindness, compassion. And to walk humbly with our God. Let me give you a couple of other scriptures. A couple of other scriptures we've already gone over. Remember Romans 12, verse 1? Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. What was one of the ways that I told you we offered our bodies as a living sacrifice? By giving ourselves away for the benefit of other people. For giving up our selfishness. Giving ourselves away. We talked about James at one point. Religion, James writes in the first chapter, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows, widows in their distress. The message is clear, church. I don't know how to make that 
Folks, the church isn't left or right. Let me just say that. The church, if we're authentically following Scripture, if we're authentically following Christ, the church of Jesus Christ isn't left or right. We shouldn't be able to fit neatly into either one of these categories that we want to put ourselves in so desperately and that, we, and that people, other people want to corner us into. This is a gospel issue all day long. This is a scriptural issue all day long. It's clear. You can't read the Old Testament. You can't read these prophets. You can't read the New Testament and deny this. There's no way. Not if you're being honest with yourselves. If we're being honest with ourselves, it can't be done. And as we just read, it reflects how we really worship God. Speaking up, taking action on behalf of others reflects how we truly are worshiping God. Did y'all hear what he said back in Amos 5 and I read you 20, what was it, 21 through 24? All the hymns that we sing, all the music that we do, all the events that we plan, that doesn't make what my dad used to say, a hill of beans. If we're not executing justice, if we're not searching justice for other people. I don't want to end this on a down note, but sometimes, sometimes we just need to lament. You know, not every sermon ends on an up note. And not every sermon should end on an up note. And this is one of the things that I dreaded talking about, but I feel so passionately about this. I feel like I have to say it. I want to give you a modern example, a very modern example of how I think the church has failed to embrace these ideas. And because of that, we've at least partially ruined a potentially great witness for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I don't just take that, I'm going to tell you this, I don't, I don't take it on my own when I, when I, when I talk about things like this. Because um, I want to make sure I'm not sharing my opinion. I like to be at least affirmed by some people that I respect. And, and, and I've heard a lot of people say this and, and uh, confirm it. And it's a hard thing to talk about. I, and if I make you mad, I'm sorry. And <clears throat> we'll talk about it after the service. Please, I love talking about this stuff. But I do want to give you one example where I feel like recently we have failed horribly horribly in the area of justice and caring for those who are the neediest and the weakest among us. From the beginning of the pandemic, y'all, <clears throat> from the beginning of COVID back in March of 2020, February 2020, whatever it was, and I don't say this to pat myself on the back, <clears throat> but it is what it is. When we first started shutting down churches, I said two things. I said, I said you know, there are two responses that we need to make as a church in regards to what's going on right now. Number one is lament. What is our role in this current situation? Searching out God, searching out hearts, searching our hearts. A lot of people, I see a lot of people, a lot of preachers, like to get up and tell you what God's doing in this moment. They don't know. All of them can't be right. <laughs> By the way, they all got different opinions. What I do know a proper Christian response is in times of trouble, in times of crisis, or lament every single time. Praying to God, crying out to God, questioning what is our role here? What is our role in this moment? The second thing that I know beyond a doubt 
in times of crisis, in times of sickness, our response as justice makers and justice seekers is to care for the poor, to care for the sickest among us, to care for the neediest among us. That is our number one priority. Historically, that has always been our number one priority in times of great crisis. To take ourselves to the sick, to take ourselves to the weakest, to take ourselves to the elderly. That was not our response, church. And I'm not talking about Beamish United Methodist. I'm talking about across the board. That was not our response, and people saw it. We had an opportunity. We had an opportunity to share, to show the entire world that Christians love them. We had an opportunity to show the entire world what the love of Christ looked like in action. Instead, what did we do? We joined with the rest of the world and we argued. We argued over masks. We argued over politics. We argued over vaccines. We argued over personal rights. We looked exactly like the rest of the world for the last year and a half. And we are called to be something bigger. Our first priority is other people. As justice seekers, our first priority should have been caring for and making sure that the most vulnerable, the elderly, the sickest among us, the poor, were being taken care of. We can all have our opinions about this stuff, but those are non-Christian opinions. It doesn't matter. What matters is caring for people in these times. What matters is seeking justice for the neediest and the weakest among us. We didn't do that. We didn't do that. We joined with the rest of the world and we argued over stuff instead of taking care of people. It was not our first concern and it should have been. It's not over. We can definitely make up for it, but will we? Can we shift our focus, for example, It hurts me, y'all. And I know a lot of other people it hurts. It hurts me to see that our focus is not on people in these times of crisis. And I think it hurts God. And I think it shows an unfortunate place of where we are as a church. And again, not talking about Beamish United Methodist, but speaking in generalities. Folks, we call <laughs> we make calls all the time. We make calls all the time to bring our nation back to God. Bring our nation back to God. Let's bring our church back to God first. We're not going to bring anybody back to God until the church comes back to God. And that applies to a lot of areas. That applies to people actually showing up to worship God on Sunday mornings, for one. That applies to people actually caring for one another within their church, allowing themselves to be discipled, discipling one another, loving one another, caring for one another. And it applies to doing the stuff, becoming the stuff that we know Christ has called us to be and become. I'm sorry I'm taking so long. Y'all can see that I'm very passionate about this. 
We got no business worrying about calling our nation back to God until we get back to God. Do the things God has called us to do. Step out of the secular world and become the church of Jesus Christ once again. This is a major part of our calling, folks, and it's a gospel imperative. It's not a, it's not a negotiable. It's a non-negotiable. It's absolutely imperative. I don't know if I've spoken to anybody today. I believe I preached a message that God wanted me to preach as difficult as it is, as hard as it is for me to get up here and do this. I hope it's touched at least one or two of you to some degree. Kevin, I'm going to ask you guys to come on up here and play.